0: All righty, everyone. Welcome back. This is Tavis Killian and not Kevin Olson this time. We actually have Scott McNear in the studio here at Rare Petro. Welcome to the show, Scott.
1: Thanks, Tavis. I'm real excited to be here with you.
0: Yeah, I think this is this is the first time we've had you here, but for those of you who don't know, Scott is always in the back pulling the strings, right? He's setting up the interviews. He's uh, getting the questions around. He's proofreading everything we put out. So it's great to have you on the show, but before we get into it, tell him a little bit about yourself how you've gotten into this position in your energy career and a little bit of your background. Yeah, sure. Thanks.
1: Um, so, you know, I'm petroleum engineer, graduated school mines, spent some time down in Midland, Texas with an operator there, came back to Denver, um, joined Rare Petro in twenty nineteen and been working with the media group and the engineering department and managing different aspects of it. So, you know, like Tava said, just been in the background the whole time up until this point. And uh, I'm excited to be a little bit more in the spotlight.
0: Fantastic. Well, now that we've got the introductions out of the way, I think we should probably just get into this news and starting it off as we usually do with Colorado DJ Nile Brera Basins. First story we have is about Suncor. Anyone who's driven through Denver in the winter has likely noticed the plumes of white clouds coming from the refinery nearby. While many think the clouds are toxic pollutants of some sort, they're actually just water vapor used to cool off machinery. The refinery is the only one in the entire state that was recently powered down due to equipment damage caused by the recent extreme cold streak. A press release issued by Suncor, the owner and operator of the refinery, announced that operations may not resume until March while repairs are made. This single refinery is responsible for about 35-40% to 40% of all the gasoline sold within Colorado, which raises concerns about gas prices in the state for the coming months. Experts warn that gas stations could begin limiting supplies to the public to conserve it for essential services, and i got to say, I think that's way far out, but this isn't specific just to Colorado. We actually saw this down in Texas recently, and that's why we're seeing these huge, huge builds reported by the EIA recently, because we just don't have uh, the capacity to process a lot of this crude. Yeah,
1: I agree. And um, along the lines of that, that gas price, I mean, I don't know if it's related to the refineries or different macroeconomics but uh you've you've seen gas prices just rise in the last few weeks i mean i'm thinking there was a one week period where i saw around my house it rose 50 cents a gallon that's just uh i don't know again if that's Suncor, if that's uh the the shutdowns in other parts of the nation but uh i also saw a post on the internet recently of uh um someone took a picture of that cloud at Suncor and was asking if it was poisonous gas and uh (laughs) I, I don't know if SunCor needs to get a little bit better at their PR and uh, get that out there so people aren't posting pictures of their clouds on the internet, but it wouldn't hurt.
0: Right. We, we don't need the only refinery we have getting shut down because of that. But what do we got next, Scott?
1: Um, next we've got uh, Colorado is requiring drillers to assess impacts of their wells, and the question is, does it matter? The tug-of-war between environmental advocacy groups and oil and gas operators seems to never end, and likely it never will. The latest push for the pro-environment groups is to toughen the rules surrounding drilling new wells and require more detailed environmental impact evaluations per well. These evaluations are already required. However, these groups say that they are not adequately outlining the possible side effects of drilling. The Colorado Oil and Gas Conservation Commission, COGCC, is in charge of handling matters of this sort and is working on both industry and environmental groups to come to a conclusion. Last year in 2022, the COGCC permitted a healthy 1,500 wells to be drilled. Perhaps this year in 2023, we'll see those numbers dip should these rules become more stringent.
0: And I understand it. People are worried. People are concerned. But just saying it's not good enough is I don't think it cuts it anymore. We're in one of the states, I'd say top three easily. Best, most safest, greenest, if you want to call it, most responsible, natural gas, oil, extraction. I mean there's no beating around the bush there. It's some of the best. But now we're getting to these really abstract arguments of well, they didn't consider how it would impact the air quality around it or the atmosphere when you drill this well. And once you get to be that abstract, I think it really gets in the way. It fortunately, like they said, we have permitted some wells last year, but where do you see the future of oil going in Colorado?
1: I mean, you know, it's it's important to to make sure that you're protecting the environment and the air quality. You see that in, as you said, Tavis, in in several states around the U.S. currently, California, New Mexico, Colorado as well. And um, that's not necessarily a bad thing, but you can take it too far just to help uh, operators operate effectively, efficiently, and within the scope of what the state requires. But again, it can be tough uh, when the state just keeps piling on more and more paperwork and regulatory work.
0: Absolutely. Speaking of paperwork and regulatory work, We've got a little bit of a pipeline to discuss, and fortunately, it's already built, it already exists, but Southwest Gas Holdings Incorporated bought a 2,160-mile pipeline network in early 2022 for $1.9 billion, which they are now selling for around $1.5 billion. For those keeping track at home, that's a loss of about $350 to $425 million, depending on how the tax situation has worked out. The network, being sold by Mountain West Pipelines, serves Northwest Colorado, Wyoming, and Utah with natural gas and will be received by Oklahoma-based pipeline giant, the Williams Companies Incorporated. The purchase and selling of the pipeline network in such a short period of time is due to the company's overvaluation of the assets and desire to return to their core business in its original states, Nevada, Arizona, and California.
1: I mean, it sounds to me like they just took a little bit too big of a bite off of what they could chew. Who knows what happened internally in the last year, but obviously, um, they, they overpaid and, uh, and now they're having to turn around and try to recoup some of what they had, had already paid. And, you know, sometimes I don't, again, this could be regulation related in that little area of Colorado and Utah. Maybe, maybe not. The Williams companies is obviously a very large midstream giant that, uh, can probably take that on and tie it into their existing lines. So, you know, it sounds to me like Southwest Gas Holdings is, is just getting more back to their core of where they think they can operate more effectively and, and actually bring value back to their shareholders.
0: Hey, good for them. I just hope they can close this deal before natural gas tanks too much.
1: Yeah, that could be a big part of it, too. It's <laughs>
0: definitely the recent moves in natural gas. But that wraps up all the news we've got for Colorado. Scott, what do we got going on in Oklahoma, the Scoop Stack Basins? Well, it looks
1: like for the scoop stack, we've got Continental Resources has named Lawler as president and CEO. Huh. William Barry, CEO of Continental Resources, retired at the start of the year. In his place, former president and COO, Doug Lawler, will retain his president title and claim that of CEO. Barry held his role at Continental Resources for about a year before retiring. Lawler has been with the company for just under a year. However, he has been in the industry for over 30 years and many of which were spent at the C-level or executive level of various companies.
0: Best of luck to him being over at Continental and I think we'll see some good things happen between him and uh, having Harold Hamm on the board still. Yep, absolutely. Next up, we've got a story about TC Energy who seems to be popping up more and more lately. Most recently, not for the best reason. TC Energy Corp.'s Keystone Pipeline has been out of operation for nearly a week after it released an estimated 14,000 barrels in what was the largest spill in a dozen years of operation. Now, this was big news for the start of December, and that's what this Basin Breakdown episode is for, but the pipeline has a capacity of 600,000 barrels per day. However, such volumes won't be resumed until the investigation, recovery, repair, and remediation wrapped up. At the time of recording this podcast, it does seem like there was an investigation in which no wrongdoing was found, and they are backed operation. While the leak took place in the Scoop and Stack region, other parts of the pipeline, which runs from Alberta to Texas, have come online quicker, in particular from Alberta to Illinois. Meanwhile, 300 pipeline employees and environmental contractors are probably sitting on a pretty stack of pennies after dealing with that cleanup. So, Like Scott mentioned earlier, we have to do our best to be good stewards of the environment, but Don't let yourself be scared by headlines because, you know, largest spill in a dozen years of operation can sound doomsday-ish. But if you look at it, 14,000 barrels is a tiny portion of 600,000 barrel per day capacity. In fact, that's only about 33 minutes of leak. So from the time where they detected this then actually got to it, that's not bad at all, in my book at least. That's quick response and efficient cleanup.
1: I mean, I agree with you, Tavis. It is unfortunate that... uh that the spill occurred in the first place. And as we've written about, about different periodicals in the past, the pipelines are the most efficient and realistically, some of the least likely historically to spill. Um, and again, even, even though it's TC energy again in the news and they've been, you know, blasted by the federal level down to the state level and beyond um, it's unfortunate for them, but at least their, their system appears to have been working if, if those, valves shut off in, within half an hour of the, the pressure drop being detected. If the valves shut off, you know immediately, and then you've got a little bit of extra spill as the, the pipelines are continuing to, to lose pressure in, in that segment. But our next story takes us outside of Oklahoma City, where a county bordering Oklahoma City has experienced a reported 20 earthquakes in the span of just a week. Grady County is known for its oil reserves and oil production. And the Oklahoma Corporate Commission, or OCC, has begun investigating the root of the issue, which seems to be an unnamed oil and gas operator. The operator has voluntarily moved out of the area to allow for investigation to proceed unhindered. The OCC has stated that while only about 5 to 10% of well operations in the area have been known to cause earthquakes, when it does, it can cause quite a few issues. And I mean, I would be interested to see what seismicity these earthquakes ended up being. I mean, I know you could have a big one followed by a bunch of smaller ones. And it's obviously possible that Oklahoma has had some issues recently with injection into areas with faults that cause earthquakes. So, um, we'll just have to wait and see what the, uh, what the report comes out with, I
0: guess. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to bring up because you've been around the block a little longer than me. You know that yes, activity like this is going to induce seismic activity. That's a fact, but what's the magnitude? Is it something really small Because even a 2 on the Richter scale, I mean, you may not even be able to detect that depending on your location. So, like Scott said, excited to see what the data reveals, but we'll just have to wait. I think that wraps up everything we've got in Oklahoma, so we're going to move it all the way to the West Coast, to California. While California leads the pack in transitioning to cleaner forms of energy, they're still allowing natural gas projects to progress, and good on them. Some will say that investing any money into hydrocarbon-based forms of energy is a poor decision for the environment. Others point out how much better for the environment natural gas is when compared to oil and coal. California is regulating those projects by requiring utility companies to have a state permit prior to building a natural gas project worth more than $75 million or expected to worsen air quality. Each project must also include an environmental analysis outlining its possible environmental impacts. I'm not super stoked on a story like this. I mean, thank you to the Turns for including it in the research, but it just, to me, speaks of the poor metrics and benchmarks that they use to identify whether a project is worthy or not because any hydrocarbon project is going to worsen air quality. But if they were to implement something more traditionally green, it wouldn't need this if it was under $75 million. That's quite a ceiling.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the moral of the story here is that if you're gonna operate in California, whether it's a utility or an oil and gas operator, you're just gonna to have to to get ready to move around the legislation that gets put in place. There's not a whole lot that, that people can do. You can you can try to, you know, battle it out in the in the courthouse or in, in the legislation, but that's gonna take time and, and you gotta look at your economics at that point too. Mm-hmm. Speaking of legislation in California, there has been a campaign behind a California oil and gas veto referendum that has submitted nearly 1 million signatures. Naturally, not everyone in California is happy with the way the state's transitioning away from some of the oil and gas operations, especially around Kern County. One group, California Independent Petroleum Association, also known as CIPA, C-I-P-A, has begun collecting signatures for their Stop the Energy Shutdown campaign. The campaign's already collected over 978,000 signatures on their veto referendum to fight back against the recently passed regulations on the oil and gas industry. That regulation was filed under Senate Bill 1137 or SB 1137. The bill was passed in hopes it would help the state meet climate goals by banning drilling wells within 3200 feet of homes, schools, nursing homes, and hospitals as well as require leak monitors and alarms. Sippa is citing that the bill will only serve to increase already high gas prices and outsource the environmental issues to other states or other countries and i mean we've been we've been following this pretty closely in, in california and and it seems like at the time i think they actually ended up getting more than 978,000 signatures yeah they signatures.
0: got what they needed
1: so when this when this was written they had almost a million signatures they did meet that requirement to get it talked to but then california just turned around and uh, and made an executive order pretty much bypassing this this will this will be drawn out for months mm-hmm. if not years in my opinion
0: yeah, what did they do? They ignored due process by citing uh, environmental emergency. So, climate yeah. emergency, environmental emergency, whatever it was. Seems to be a very common way of dealing with this. So, I guess fingers crossed, see what we can do, influence it as much as we can, but at the end of the day, state and local governments and they're going to they're going to trump what any yeah. operator wants to do.
1: And that's why these groups exist, the the Colorado Oil and Gas Association, COGA, the the California Independent Petroleum Association, SIPA, I mean, that's, that's what they're trying to do is help operators, especially smaller ones that don't have as deep of pockets, just uh, try not to get rolled over by legislation that, that just blankets everything. And I know that SIPA won't stop, so we'll just have to wait and see what happens with their, uh, with their continued efforts on this front.
0: Absolutely. But even past the present, we've got a couple of battles to work through in the future, California has recently approved a roadmap for carbon neutrality by 2045. What they mean by that is, by 2045, California will have, or hopes to have, achieved carbon neutrality, meaning that the amount of carbon emissions it generates will be balanced by the amount it removes from the atmosphere. By reducing the demand for hydrocarbons by 86% through that time, it hopes to achieve this goal. Critics claim it offers the biggest emitters in the state an excuse for not doing enough to slow down climate change. Among other things, the proposal would lower demand for liquid petroleum fuel by 94%, and increase solar and wind power capacity by a factor of four. Additionally, it intends to reduce methane emissions from the agricultural sector by 66%. And all of this sounds pretty bad to me considering what we've seen say the past 3 years at least from the agricultural side we saw Sri Lanka try to reduce their methane emissions and reduce grain output we see a, what a 94% reduction of petroleum fuel sure if we go to liquid natural gas i i think that could work but i sounds like especially LA is trying to go electric so i almost want to sit back wipe my hands off and see what happens because i think it would be a great case study to really illustrate how important hydrocarbons are but then again Maybe we do have to push back a little bit.
1: Yeah, and I mean, this this seems like another one of those pieces of legislation that's almost a can kicking down the road, similar to the electric vehicle mandate. I mean, by 2045, is anybody that's still working on this or helped enact this? Are they going to still be in office in California? Who knows? Um, but the the rules will still be in place unless they, they adjust them. But uh, yeah, it should be interesting to see. How they try to do this, I, I know that a lot of the times, I didn't dig into the, to the legislation itself, but a lot of the times it's, it's a nice blanket statement, but not really a plan of action to follow through on. And that agricultural sector reduction is going to be probably one of the toughest parts of this whole thing. So staying on the environmental topic, but moving over to the Marcellus, Pennsylvania has passed an emergency rule to trim smog and methane emissions at oil and gas wells. Governor Tom Wolfe decided to pass new rules to help bring down methane emissions in the state of Pennsylvania. But what was that exactly? He partnered with the State Department of Environmental Protection, or the DEP, to use a rare emergency rule to bypass Republican legislators who would likely have shot down the ruling. While some have been critical of his unconventional methods, especially with regulations, without them the state might have been fined $800 million in federal highway aid for not reducing methane emissions in a timely manner. In fact, had the governor not invoked the emergency rule, the state likely would have run out of time considering the deadline was a week away. And I don't know. It sounds like he's just putting between a rock and a hard place. So mm-hmm. I don't know how long this emergency rule will be in effect, but uh, it, it didn't sound from an administrative side that he had many other options.
0: Right. I get it. There's a lot of this legacy infrastructure that is, you know, leaking because it's so old. It's so corroded. It's just an open conduit from the bottom of the earth straight to the surface Sure, we need to identify that, but that wasn't really why he made the decision. He was going to miss out on federal highway aid. Like he said, kind of need that. That money's going to go a long way. But we see what happened in California where they just said, well, it's an environmental emergency and just kind of ignored the processes we've set up for things like this.
1: That's true. And I mean, the real question will be down the road when we look at this and say, how long have these emergency rules been enacted and uh, when are we going to roll them back? Until an acceptable time has passed and we need to get back to the way things were.
0: Mm -hmm. But as far as the topic of pollution goes, we've got a little more to discuss. A Western Pennsylvania contractor was fined for illegally dumping oil and gas waste. John A. Joseph, owner and operator of his own oil and gas waste company, illegally dumped waste at five sites he owned or had contracts to provide fill. The waste included drill cuttings from pipeline projects in West Virginia. Joseph, reached by phone Thursday, declined to comment, referring questions to his attorney. None of the samples registered high enough levels of pollution or radioactivity to warrant further cleanup. Quote, none showed any risk or harm to the public or environment from radiation. End quote, the DEP said in a statement. And I don't know, this is tough, because he likely knew that it was probably fine, probably not radioactive, probably didn't contain a lot of things outside of some cuttings, but then again, we got to follow the rules. And if you keep pulling stuff like this, we lose credibility, and then it's easier to declare environmental emergency.
1: Yeah, I mean, you you said it all right there. I mean, you you have to follow the disposal that has been set in place. Uh, you can't just dump produced water into a stream. You can't dump cuttings into, into a landfill unless it's designated for that. So there wasn't any risk from the DEP, um, but that still doesn't mean that They didn't follow the policies and processes of disposing of oil and gas waste. Moving on to the other side of the Marcellus, we're going to go to Ohio real quick. A bill intended to speed up oil and gas drilling in state parks was approved by Ohio lawmakers recently. Since 2011, state agencies have had permission to lease Ohio's public lands for drilling. This, according to environmentalists, will harm the state parks and other natural regions. Currently, on state forest and park areas in Pennsylvania, not Ohio, New oil and gas leasing is prohibited. Drilling on state lands is currently not governed in Ohio, however, and regulations are being developed by the Oil and Gas Land Management Commission. Jim McGregor, a member of that organization, claims that the panel is still in its infancy and has only convened three times. So, I mean, what do you think, Tavis? It it seems like Ohio, for how old of an oil and gas producing state they are, they're still kind of Making a lot of changes to the regulatory processes.
0: Yeah, I'm incredibly surprised, like you said, given the the legacy of industry. This is only coming up now? (laughs) But if I was to play devil's advocate, I mean, come on, these national parks, trails run through maybe 20% of it, and then maybe another 40 is utilized for recreation and stuff like that. If we take a tiny surface footprint of one of these wells and were to put it back there, I think we could draw up some sort of agreement that directs, even if it's a higher taxation or whatever, however it's broken out, money that goes directly back into the park. I'm talking, you know, just a pad with maybe a few wells running underneath it, not a ton of infrastructure surrounding it. Truck it out if you need to, but that could bring a lot of money back into the natural resource, or well, back into the park. So I think there's interesting discussions to be had here, but of course, if you look at it from a general social perspective everyone has, it's probably a bad thing in the minds of most.
1: Yeah, I mean, we'll see how this thing continues to develop again, Um, obviously in its infancy, but we'll just have to keep an eye on it and and see what the state decides to do.
0: But that rounds out everything we've got up in that northeast section there. we got to move it over to Texas, starting with the Permian. Leading oil and gas companies are now investing billions in the Permian Basin, despite a dip in the prices, which you can easily see if you look at the rig counts within the past four or five months or so. Several leading majors in the Permian Basin continue increasing CapEx allocations for the Permian Basin despite a slight retreat in energy prices in the second half of 2022. ExxonMobil expressed that it will maintain its $25 billion per year CapEx program through 2027, much of which will be allocated to their high-return prospects like Guyana, Brazil, and the Permian Basin through subsidiary XTO. The Permian is currently running more than 60 more rigs than it was this time last year. However, the downward trend in commodity prices observed in the second half of last year from the June peak of $122 per barrel could threaten the CapEx outlook for other E&P companies. And Scott, do you agree with that last sentence there? Because 122 while high, what are we at now? 80-ish? That's, that's not necessarily low. I feel like a lot of these companies could continue with their programs.
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't think that this story is necessarily groundbreaking or or unexpected. Um, You know, for example, Exxon, Chevron, the the majors, they slashed their capital budget huge back in 2020 and in beginning of 2021. So there's only so long that they can continue to just sit on base declining assets before they have to go back to the board and start spending again. That's just uh, the only way to keep that machine moving forward. The other thing, is again, like you said, I think that eighty dollars a barrel. Although it is lower than the one hundred twenty-two peak we saw last year, it's still above a lot of the forty to sixty range that we saw, you know, in the last five years or so. And um, the hardest thing, really, for this is not going to be the capex allocation, in my opinion, but finding the manpower of the rigs and the frac crews to be able to spend it and and get a good job and not have not have shortages. That's going to be the hardest part for all of these EMP companies in the Permian as they pick back up because if you take up all the frac crews from one area, there's not more frac crews necessarily available <laughs> for someone else to start ramping up as well till they get till they get going again and get get more people hired. So now leaning into some sustainability news in the Permian. Uh, There's a headline that says, To ease looming West Texas water shortage, oil companies have begun recycling fracking wastewater. Shale companies, on average, reuse about 30% of their wastewater. XRI, a Permian Basin Wastewater Management and Frack Water Recycling Company, is hoping to increase that percentage. With the Ogallala Aquifer, the main freshwater aquifer underlying West Texas and a large portion of Midwestern states depleting at a a 6.5 times the recharge rate, There is hope that recycling frack water will alleviate some strain on the freshwater supply. Seismic events partially attributable to wastewater injection might also be reduced in magnitude and frequency with less wastewater being injected. And I mean, this is not new. This is not new news. People have been working on this concept since I was still back in Midland back in 2015, 2014 era. They were still figuring it out. I know New Mexico is also requiring people to, work on getting more recycling pits so that they don't have as much disposal wells. So, I mean, I think this is just the way that, uh, that frack frac development is going to just continue to go in the Permian. I don't know what your thoughts are on it. Tavis.
0: I was going to say, as soon as you read the headline, reusing, recycling wastewater, you go, Oh yeah. Were, were we not doing that already? It's sort of like, a, Oh, why didn't I think about that? But when you have an aquifer like that running through all of Texas, I mean, we're just getting to the point of now recharging is becoming a bit of a concern. So that's why it's now maybe not economic to consider these issues. Well, maybe it is economic to consider recycling frack water, but it's probably more your wheelhouse I, than mine.
1: I would say that it's both economics and regulatory pressure. So it's, yeah, we, it's, we it's economic it. because I have to do it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, that's just how that goes some way. And the other thing is it's not just the freshwater aquifers that are necessarily getting depleted. Well, I should say the other way around. There's freshwater aquifers getting depleted, but you're also pressuring up some of the saltwater aquifers that you dispose into. I mean, the San Andres Formation, I have heard, I, I haven't re- recently looked up the actual numbers on it, but I've heard that it it has been slowly in certain areas of the Permian getting a higher and higher uh, pressure gradient that you have to start setting intermediate casing where before you could just run long stream. So. That depends on the area, obviously, and how much water is being injected, but it it hits on both sides. And and if you can recycle that water one or two times before you have to dispose of it, then good for the companies that are able to do that.
0: Absolutely. And our last story for the Permian, we've got a Permian Basin power surge. With ever-increasing activity in the Permian Basin and an ever-increasing impetus to reduce emissions intensity, BPX Energy has shifted towards building electric central collection facilities in West Texas leasehold acreage. The first such facility, Grand Slam, love the name, located near Orla, Texas, incorporates electric compressors to collect low-pressure gas that would otherwise be vented or flared. Diamondback Energy and Pioneer Resources, two of the largest players in the Midland, have begun hiring electric drilling rigs and electric frack fleets in an effort to reduce Scope 1 and Scope 2 emissions. Now, the first part of this article I'm all about, if we can find ways to use energy that otherwise would have just gone wasted or flared, I'm all about that. But the, the second part, Diamondback and Pioneer, are they really excited about these electric rigs, or is this just something they're doing because, again, they kind of have to at this point?
1: I mean, I'm not going to speak for their their corporate management and their ESG... Um... Plans because obviously they have a better handle on that than you or I do. (laughs) But um, yeah, I do think it's it's more of a strategic planning for what they see coming down the road um, with scope one and scope two, especially if the SEC starts implementing those type of tracking metrics that everybody that's a public company has to follow. I mean, it's easier to have it in place now when you can get the bugs worked out than uh, try to do it scrambling at the last minute.
0: Right. And what, I mean, it also caught my attention that was Diamondback and Pioneer, not just two random people. So uh, at the very least, good on them for trying to do this because either way we look at it, that's probably going to be in the future. So I'm excited. It sounds like all good news for the Permian. Lots of growth. What do we got for the Eagleford?
1: Well, it looks like down in the Eagleford that uh, Marathon Oil has completed an acquisition. Pretty big one, too. Marathon completed the $3 billion acquisition of Eagleford Assets from Enzyme Natural Resources that was announced on November 2nd of 2022. Marathon expects to produce 67,000 barrels of oil equivalent per day from the acquired assets in the next year, and they expect to drill 35 to 40 new wells on the acreage and keep one rig running throughout the next year. Acreage is immediately offset to a large portion of Marathon's existing leaseholds, and the company expects to realize considerable operational synergies through this deal in the coming years. And I mean, this is just what we've kind of been waiting on happening. It's It's been happening in the Eagleford, I think, possibly most recently. is just people finally deciding to pull the trigger on some bolt-on acreage and and get some more duck inventory, or not even duck, get some more drilling inventory.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, in the past six months or so, we've seen a few deals here and there in the Eagleford for a couple hundred acres or maybe a thousand or two barrels of oil equivalent production, but this... This is, I feel like, one of the big Hallmark deals, and I'm excited that this went down right at the end of the year. Because to me, this means quite possibly a healthy year for the Eagleford moving into 2023. Speaking of 2023, the Eagleford, a return to the sale spotlight. The Eagleford saw a considerable increase in m and activity in 2022, like we mentioned, and has a bright future. The Eagleford realizes higher commodity prices than the Permian because of the natural gas gathering infrastructure that is more commensurate with its production and because it is closer to the Gulf Coast refineries, crude export terminals, gas processing plants, arterial pipelines, and other infrastructure. With increasing demand for LNG globally and more LNG export terminals in the permitting process, the gassier Eagleford stands to grow considerably in importance in the coming years. And I gotta say, this. I like what this is setting up for the future, especially with increased natural gas consumption.
1: Yeah, I agree, and as you know, some of this will too depend on the uh, the price moves that natural gas itself has, which obviously those those decisions to buy stuff in the middle of last year might look a little bit different currently as we're mm-hmm. recording this right now with gas what just over three dollars a an mmbtu or something, but um, but that still doesn't mean that uh, it's not good economics, and uh, I know that the Eagleford... With, with a lot of the M&As of, of mid-sized oil companies in the last, you know, 12 to 18 months, I, people are trying to spin off some of their assets that don't make sense for the new companies that they now have created or merged together. And other people are going to be picking those up to see if they can't make them economic or optimize them and, and get some cash out of it. So to wrap up the Texas basins, uh, this article kind of encompasses both Permian and Eagleford. Um, U.S. shale output is expected to keep growing, uh, according to the EIA. Led by the Permian Basin, all of the major shale basins across the U.S. are expected to grow in production volumes in January 2023. The Eagle Ford Shale of South Texas is expected to climb from 1.23 million barrels per day to 1.24 million barrels per day, the highest rate since April 2020. Natural gas across all American shale basins is expected to increase 535 million cubic feet per day to a record of 96.28 BCF per day. These production increases are all expected to come almost exclusively from the drilling and completing of new wellboard duck inventories that seems to have bottomed out, increasing by 22 ducks in November, which was the first month to increase since June of 2020, which is pretty crazy. We've been following these duck inventories Probably since the middle of 2020, and it seems like it has finally bottomed out um, and it's making builds again. So that means that uh, prices may be on the turnaround. I don't well, know. That's what I was going <laughs> to say, though,
0: because this research I'm sure was put together by the IEA, I'm sorry, the EIA through November, released in December, and we can see what commodity prices have done from that time period. Back when this research started, yeah, absolutely. I see the Eagle Ford in South Texas pushing buy at least a little bit more every day but now ugh, i don't know like you said people who are making especially marathon oil three billion dollar acquisitions other people with multi-million dollar acquisitions that might look a little bit differently and i don't know if the eia would still back this up given commodity prices this month but the duck inventory i can't argue that that is an important aspect that um, we have to be cognizant of
1: and some of that too could uh could still be like what we were talking about with the the manpower required to complete those, it's possible that those ducks are just in a holding pattern because they can't get enough crews to go do it. Mm -hmm. And they could still be drawn down if we had enough people to to handle that volume of completion activity.
0: Yeah, either way you cut it, there's definitely room to grow in Texas, but we close the door on it for this month, and we travel to Wyoming where we will look at the Powder River Basin. Domestic oil, natural gas permitting slumps in November, but there is a trajectory for a record year. Many states around the U.S. experienced a pullback in permitting in October and November of 2022. Nationally, the permit count declined by 7% month-over-month from October to November, coming after a 16% slump from September to October, so things slowing considerably up to the holidays. Wyoming experienced a 45% month-over-month dip in permitting moving into November. Pennsylvania, Kansas, and Utah were among the other few states to post positive permitting movement.
1: Realistically, I mean, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, Tavis, I believe a while back we had an article about um, the federal government raising the royalty rates on new leases. And, um, you know, with with that increase, especially with Wyoming having as much federal acreage as they have, it's not really that big of a surprise that uh, permitting goes down when people lose... An extra 8 to 12 percent on their what would have been their NRI that's now going to the federal government.
0: Right. This isn't so much a bottleneck at the agency level. This is more just probably a lack of interest because they're getting handed a pretty raw deal, especially with that 50 percent royalty interest, like you mentioned. So we'll keep an eye on it, but it's not looking great. Speaking of
1: leases in Wyoming, nearly 350,000 acres in Wyoming is included in a proposed 2023 oil and gas lease sale. Announced on December 20th, the Bureau of Land Management will be hosting a sale of 115 parcels totaling 95,580 acres in Q3 of 2023 in Wyoming. This announcement comes after a different announcement about the sale of 209 parcels totaling 251,086 acres in Q2 of 2023. So that's a lot of that's a lot of acreage that's going to be up for auction here, mm-hmm. um, in 23. The Inflation Reduction Act stipulates that at least two million acres of onshore federal land must be bid out before wind and solar leases are offered. Both of these oil and gas lease rounds have been spurred by that clause. The Biden administration has offered the fewest acres for oil and gas leasing of any administration since World War II. Which has triggered a number of lawsuits to spur the BLM into more lease sales to meet its legal obligation to hold such bid rounds, and I mean we talked about this in the past as well. Uh, it seemed like they, the Biden administration, was just not not wanting to lease anything federally, and it seems like now that they got a little bit of the the Inflation Reduction Act policies in place that they wanted, and um, they can hopefully move forward with
0: getting someone to to lease these parcels. Even if they do what we've seen in recent times, because it's not that the Biden administration has auctioned off zero. It's just been very little. And the stuff we have seen, the sales we have seen go through, environmental groups immediately wrap it up in the courts. So there's also that incentive. I mean, like Scott said, one, it's already higher royalty rate. Two, you got to deal with the federal land aspect. Three, people are going to tangle it up in courts. So I wouldn't be surprised just because this is being sold that doesn't mean it gets bought up. So we might see. Yeah, it was offered, but I don't know how many people are going to take the deal. And in a story that has become, I'm going to say, all too familiar in the past year, I feel like anytime we talk about Wyoming in 2022, we talk about lawsuits. And guess what? It's happening again. Three months after a federal judge ruled that the Interior Secretary Deb Haland and her office had legally delayed lease sales in Wyoming pending further environmental investigation. The Petroleum Association of Wyoming and the Western Energy Alliance are in the process of suing the same office again for delaying federal lease sales in Wyoming. Governor Mark Gordon is quoted as saying, quote, I firmly believe the most recent pause in lease sales was politically driven and not based in law or fact, End quote. And I got to say, I share the guy's frustration. If you just say pending further environmental review and not a lot of data comes out, you're bound to get mad. So I really hope Wyoming's able to sort this out, but it just seems like we get locked up in courts and the feds versus the state. There's no common ground, no compromise to be made.
1: Yeah. And it's really too bad for the state of Wyoming. They've been fighting this for pretty much since Biden took office. It seems like, um, just trying to get lease sales done so they can get some additional revenue for the state. And, um, yeah, it just seems like, um, it seems like the Biden administration is planning some stuff in the second half of 2023, but, uh, you know, it's been, at that point, it would have been almost three years of them trying to get some of these lease sales uh, pushed through and, and get development going again in the Powder River Basin.
0: But this one's running a little bit long, so we're going to push it up to the Williston, our last in the podcast, and get through some of this news, because believe it or not, things are actually very busy at the Rare Petro office. Lots of people to meet, lots of things to do, so... Will give you this last basin. First up, newly announced Energy and Economic Coordination Office is to streamline and generate economic advancements within the state's energy industry. And you can tell the government's tied into this just based on that headline alone. The North Dakota Energy and Economic Coordination Office, or ECO, E-E-C-O, a new department announced recently by the North Dakota Department of Commerce, the NDDC will serve as a tool whereby North Dakota's energy experts will collaborate more closely with North Dakota's energy industry. The eco will focus on the strategic development of all energy assets along with having an element of stewardship in its commission. And to me this is just another environmental regulation board, right? I don't have more details on this yet, but I guess I'm excited to see what it is.
1: Yeah, I guess we'll just have to see, you know, what they who they appoint and uh, what they Side to do, it does seem a lot like just another government oversight um, group it's that's going <laughs> to put more, put more paperwork in place, possibly. So hopefully it doesn't affect the productivity of operators up in the Williston Basin. Speaking of productivity that has affected some operators in the Williston, a winter storm in the week of December 12th in North Dakota sidelined about 350,000 barrels of oil production. The following week saw several days where the daily high temperature was below zero degrees Fahrenheit making restarting artificial list systems and midstream infrastructure difficult or nearly impossible. North Dakota gas spot prices spiked sharply during this period, uh, which was ascribed to gas exports and the wintry weather. So, I mean, that's just something you can't really, can't really, you can plan for it, but you can't really do much about.
0: Right. Hell on earth just pops up in North Dakota as it freezes over and November and December. I mean those pictures are crazy, but I'm glad I don't personally yeah. have to deal with it yet.
1: The biggest thing is I just making sure that making sure that your people stay safe and your your oil and gas wells don't cause an environmental issue and then get things back online as
0: fast as you can. Absolutely. And our last story for the podcast, Scott's debut. Zephyr Energy makes a new acquisition in Utah and North Dakota. Zephyr Energy completed the purchase of operated wells in the Paradox Basin in Utah as well as non-operated interest in several Williston Basin wells. The Williston Basin wells are operated by Slauson Exploration, and Zephyr Energy will have between 11 and 32% working interest in these wells. And I personally don't know too much about either of these companies. Scott, you got a little bit of insight. I mean,
1: I worked with Slauson Energy back uh, when I was working non-op for an operator. And, um, I mean, they're they're based out of Kansas. Uh, they're, as far as I know, a fairly good operator. But, uh you know, it's not unusual for them to share working interest on their wells. Like I said, I, I was doing the non-op side of things, and, and that just seems to be part of how they raise their capital to continue drilling. I mean, they have obviously other other ventures going on, but 11 to 32% working interest. Give Zephyr Energy a minority working interest ownership, uh, pay some of the bills, and keep on drilling.
0: But that brings us to the end of the episode. Scott, excellent first episode. Well done. Well, thank
1: you, Tavis. I uh, appreciate uh, the coaching. Yeah. Oh, no. (laughs) Don't
0: let him fool you. Those of you listening, he's a natural. He's going to have me kicked out of this office in no time. I'll be replaced. I'm just kidding. We've got lots of people working to put great content together, whether that's our Nick turn right here in Colorado or our Nick turn in Saudi Arabia. Thanks for Dick Fernhow and Nick Bryan for putting together this research because without that, we wouldn't have been able to do it. Between them, and Scott, and myself, we've got a lot of people working to put together great content, video essays, interviews, other podcasts, whatever. We like to put a lot of energy information out there as centrally based and as factual as we can so you can draw your own conclusions. So if you need more, scroll back in this podcast list, you'll find more episodes or go to www.rarepetro.com to find plenty of our own content and some of our other favorite publishers putting out news that we think is important for you to read. This has been Tavis Killian and Scott McNear with Rare Petro. And until we see you next time, take care, everybody.